interesting that the first sermon that was preached in a truly Christian context, church context, on the day of Pentecost, should be so much about the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father of the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now we can see how crucial the resurrection is in all of that. His death would not be what it is without the resurrection. Jesus, through his resurrection and exaltation and final ascension to take his place at the Father's right hand, his story would not be complete without the resurrection. The resurrection vindicated everything that he said, everything that he did, all his claims about himself, both direct and indirect claims. All of this makes sense in the resurrection. How wonderful to know that the father had drawn a line in the sand and said, yes, I will allow him to be delivered unto death. It was the father's will to bruise him, to see him suffer, as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Yes, he would allow his hands to be pierced. He would allow him to be beaten and put to shame 
and allow him even to be buried, but there would come a point where the father says, enough is enough. I will not allow my holy one to see corruption. And this is very helpful for, there are many people today who kind of look upon the crucifixion as a, as a kind of evidence against Jesus being a, the Messiah, or even actually denying the crucifixion on the basis that he was a prophet. Because they say, how could God let such a thing happen to such a holy man, a holy person, such a prophet? If he was Messiah, he was to take over, he was to rule, he was to reign. But the resurrection, which came before the point of physical corruption of the body of Jesus, is the demonstration of everything that Jesus is. And I'm, I'm thinking for us today, it can't, it can't get better than this. Surely if we are seeking to enter into the mind of Jesus in a way, because this is important for us to understand what motivated him and, and how he's thinking and how he's feeling about all of this. Remember, Jesus is the model for us. He teaches us how to live in father-facing obedience. He models for us what it means to please God. Everything else that, he's, that I've said is true, it's right, and at the heart of it, but it's important also to remember that Jesus is our, is our great example. And how he handled things, what's important to him, surely must also be important to us. Now, the question I pose to you today, and we'll look at it for a little while, is what was or is the greatest moment in Jesus' life? I'm not talking merely as the Son of God. We'd have to go way back into eternity when uh, the Father used the Son to bring creation into this world and, and devise the great plan of salvation and all the eternal counsels of God, and that must be absolutely fantastic. But I'm talking about Jesus. That is the name given to God incarnate, the Son of God who was born into this world. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What might you think would be the big moment, the greatest moment in, in the life of Jesus? We could perhaps say it was the incarnation. We know in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, it's written there, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do your will, O God. If we just pause and reflect on that for a moment. It's speaking about a time when, when Jesus actually accepted the Father's will to be sent into this world, and he is so happy. It's a great moment for him, a moment in which he was demonstrating his love for the Father, his total unity with the Father's purposes, to say, I'm prepared to leave aside all this glory in heaven, and I'm prepared at my Father's bidding to fulfill my Father's will, this great love that is sending me into this world that I might be the Savior of the world. Surely that was a great moment, a great moment in the life of the Son of God who lives always to submit to the Father and to please the Father. And when we see the manner of his coming, I know this is Easter, not Christmas, but let's, you're going to get Christmas, Easter, you're going to get Ascension, you're going to get Pentecost all rolled into one today. What that enabled him to be, enabled him to do, the Bible says that he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, which was the ultimate purpose of his coming in the flesh. Then we might move on and say, 
Which one of the great moments in Jesus' earthly ministry might he choose to say, that was a great moment, that was the greatest moment? I don't know what you think is the greatest moment in the Gospels. I don't know, many, many of us think of, of Lazarus. That, that was a very big moment, a very big moment when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die, but they shall, be, shall live and there was some argument and discussion when Jesus said, Lazarus shall live. And, and, and one of the sisters said, well, no, of course he will at resurrection day. And the other said, it's too late to talk like that. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I can't think at this moment anyway of a more powerful miracle than Jesus performed. A man whose body was already corrupting. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And I don't know how he did it, whether he shouted it, I, I don't know whether they did it in the Pentecostal fashion. Any of us have got hold of that. We had used a megaphone, perhaps. Or maybe he didn't need to do that because having the authority as resurrection and life, all he needed to do was speak Lazarus' name. Great moment. Maybe we think of the times in which Jesus was moved with compassion, always moving with the compassion of the Father, as the Father's heart throbbed with compassion for the crowds, for the individuals, so Jesus' hands and feet were moved in unison with that compassion, demonstrating the Father's love, demonstrating the Father's grace, demonstrating the Father's compassion. Any one of those choice moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. How about his death on the cross? I mean, that, by all estimation, has got to be a high spot if not the high spot. It was the whole purpose for him coming into the world. I came for this purpose. I was sent into the world for this purpose. And the Apostle John describes it in terms of Jesus being lifted up. Lifted up. A deliberate ambiguity. Because the word lifted up means exalted. And Jesus was truly exalted. And that was the highest moment to date of the demonstration of Jesus' willingness to obey the Father and surrender to the Father's will. He said, even as he went into the Garden of Gethsemane in John 14, 31, he says, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And that was the Ne the next move was the move into the Garden of Gethsemane and all the events now were locked in and this was going to lead inevitably to his arrest, his crucifixion. But how did he view it? What a great moment when he's able to say, the world is going to know that I love the Father. What motivation. What a picture of sonship. No wonder Jesus is able to say, if you love me, keep my command. Do what I tell you. Don't just say it, do it. Because love is demonstrated in action. And we speak so much about how the love of God is manifested on the cross, and so it is. We speak how Jesus' love for us is, is defined by the cross. We would not know what love was if it were not for the cross. But how many, do, how many times do we reflect on this being the, the the wonderful expression of, the of Jesus' love for the Father. He says, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to do everything the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. 
that has many meanings for us, but surely we take away from that that love for God means following Him, obeying Him, and doing so with delight, doing so with anticipation. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be exalted, to be lifted up on the cross. And He said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. Surely Jesus was thinking about that. The prophecy, He shall prolong His days. He shall see the fruit of his travail, and shall be satisfied. You know, there's an old hymn we used to sing, that shepherd so kind had me in his mind when he laid down his life for his sheep. I believe that Jesus died for every single person, but I also believe that he had us on his mind. The Bible says Jesus loved the church and gave himself for the church. He saw Colin, not just the old Colin, uh, but the new one, and not just the new one, the, the one that is yet to be. He saw you. He died for you. He died for me. So personal. And, and he knew that the moment the cross and resurrection had taken place, that the proclamation of the gospel would lead to the outflowing of the Holy Spirit and that great attraction of the cross. The Spirit opens our eyes to the to the power of the cross, the attraction of the cross. That's why we should keep the cross central. Of course, the cross without the resurrection is, is not enough, but we preach the cross knowing that Jesus didn't stay there. He didn't stay in the tomb. He didn't stay in the grave. God raised him from the dead. That's why we must be cross-centered people. Everything that we do is as a result of the attraction of the cross in our lives. What a, a great moment. And maybe you say that could not be surpassed until we get to resurrection day. His resurrection. What a wonderful, wonderful vindication of Jesus. Jesus never set about vindicating himself. And there's a big lesson there. They even the cross is a, is a sign of human rejection of the love of God. So in the cross, it's all about rejection. And yet, the resurrection is about vindication. They say, revenge is sweet. Don't believe it. Revenge leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Let's change that. Let's say, vindication is sweet. Oh, yes, it is. Especially when it's done by God. And this was God's vindication of his son. That prior line drawn in the sand. They, the father allowed the soldiers to beat him and mock him. The father allowed him to be crucified. The father allowed him to be put to shame publicly. The father allowed all of that, even allowed him to be placed into a tomb. But the father said, I will not allow him to suffer Corruption in the tomb. My Holy One shall be raised. Amen. Father stepped in. And I, I, I know, I don't have to be a prophet this morning to say, some of you, <coughs> all of you, at one stage or another, have been hurt by somebody else. I don't have to say amen, just say mm-hmm. <laughs> Many of you know what, it me what rejection means. Many of you know what it means when people have said all manner of evil against you falsely. 
God bless you, sister. <laughs> and we also know the temptation to try and put the record straight, to say, oh, no, it wasn't like that. And, you know, the more you try, the worse it gets. They don't believe you. And sooner or later, biblical sense comes back to you say, God, I leave it in your hands. I'm willing to live in an unvindicated state because the day will come if you choose and when you choose that I will clear my name. Well, God cleared the name of Jesus on that day. How amazing, how wonderful, and how sweet is that vindication when God does it. And, you know, there is a promise for us all. Do you know all of us are yet to be vindicated? Do you know that? I don't just mean in our personal lives. Now, you might experience that when you win that court case. Hallelujah. When you get that blessed visa, that's vindication and a half. Or when you get that promotion, when you discover that the eyes of the boss was on, were on you all the time, when you thought nobody noticed, and you thought you were forgotten, and then comes that wonderful interview with the boss saying, I'm promoting you, and, and you, you don't really believe it until the end of the month comes, you see the paycheck, and you say, well, it was true after all. And there are wonderful moments when God allows those things to happen and nobody can deny it feels good. But you and I are going to have to live the rest of our lives at a level where we are not vindicated. What am I talking about? You see, we too are waiting for a resurrection. The Bible describes our resurrection as the manifestation of the sons of God. And we don't wish anything on anybody. I remember when I was a new believer, fairly new believer. I wouldn't be like this today, I hope. We were out there in the front of the church, handing out tracts and witnessing. And along came a crusty old man. He probably isn't as old as I am today, but he was at that age, 18 years of age to me. He looked very old. And he was with a walking stick, and, and he was... And he, I handed him this, he said, I don't want that. He said, are you people? Are you people going to heaven? So he said, yes, we are. I said, well, if you people are going there, I want to go to the other place. <laughs> so before I could stop myself, I said, sir, that is very probably where you are going. <laughs> and he hit me with his stick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was vindication. And I certainly don't think it was persecution because we wouldn't wish that on anybody. But the truth is, without Christ, there is no hope. But this world, if you've not yet noticed it, noticed it let me tell you, this world is against Christ. We live in an anti-Christ world. And that's not suffering from persecution complex. Light and darkness, they don't mix if they hated him without a cause, they will hate us. Have you noticed how that, you know, everything is acceptable, but the moment people start witnessing to Jesus, suddenly that's religious bigotry and intolerance. Do you know of all religious persecution and martyrdom in the world today, 80% of it is against Christians. This world is not our home. We are living in a foreign hostile, alien environment. And we 
will not be recognized for who we are until the day of our resurrection when it shall be manifested that we are and were the sons of God. And in the meantime, we live with the same humility that Jesus lived, not to try to vindicate ourselves ahead of time. Sometimes, you know, it happens in small doses when people who were our enemies become our friends. The people who hated Jesus become fellow lovers of Jesus in the body of Christ. And they say, now I understand. Now I understand. But really, this world will not accept us for who we are because it didn't accept him for who he is. But the day is coming when the sons of God will be manifested. This body shall be redeemed and it will be manifested to all that we were the sons of God, not because we were claiming arrogantly things for ourselves, but God himself vindicated us. I think, too, the resurrection of ministry of Jesus was amazing. It's wonderful to trace the gospel stories of Jesus before the cross, how he ministered to people. But we have some examples of the resurrection ministry of Jesus. And let me tell you, it's summarized by this. The resurrection ministry of Jesus is life-transforming. Mary, who was, had given up in depression and hopelessness, she met Jesus, her life was transformed. Peter, who was beating himself up because he denied Christ, met the risen Christ and was totally, totally reconciled and recommissioned. And thank God it's the risen Christ we're meeting today. Whatever need we have, Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory is the answer. So for all these reasons... We could say that Jesus would say, very easy, the greatest moment of my life is the resurrection, but there's more. We read it kind of put together a little bit here in Acts chapter 2, but the resurrection exaltation to Jesus, of Jesus at the right hand of the Father is kind of part of a process here. It's almost described as a single act, but we must understand there are two separate things. First, his resurrection, and then his ascension. The church is not wrong to celebrate Ascension Sunday. The Ascension is a very important part of our teaching and the teaching of the gospel. It's, of course, tied up to the resurrection and exaltation, but Jesus hung around in his resurrected body for a few weeks. He had certain stuff to do. First of all, he was to show himself to be alive with many infallible proofs. Remember, the apostles were not specific eyewitnesses of the resurrection itself in the tomb. They said they know he was raised from the dead because they met him afterwards. So Jesus was making it clear that he really had been raised from the dead. Very important part of apostolic testimony and apostolic witness. But also Jesus had some teaching to do. To direct the church towards the future. To let them know what the job was to go out and make disciples of all nations. Cause them to understand that they couldn't do this in their own strength and power, but had to be clothed with power from on high, commissioning the church, giving the church that final set of teaching to prepare them for the new era of the absent Lord. And then the day came when Jesus was lifted up to heaven. Praise God. How wonderful is the ascension and and if you have a vivid imagination, which I do, I kind of wonder what it was like. 
Because this is real. This isn't just a statement. It is real. Jesus ascended to heaven. Can you imagine what kind of welcome he received in heaven? Can you imagine the celebration in heaven? I mean, you know, I think we here in Britain have got a little bit more of insight into this than many countries because we are very big on royalty. Whereas certainly when it comes to coronation, nobody can out-pomp and circumstance the Brits. And they come from all over the world just to see the changing of the guard. You ain't seen nothing yet. The Queen's coronation is still there, displayed all over the world. Wonderful, wonderful pomp and ceremony and circumstance. And if that's just a pale, insipid, earthly reflection of a heavenly reality, what must it have been like when Christ Jesus entered heaven and sat down? Heaven's literal people... It's not just a kind of spiritual truth, it's a reality. He actually is seated on the throne of the universe. That great executive position, the government of God, Jesus is exercising that government. How wonderful to know that in that place he is ruling and reigning. And we'll get back in a moment to some of the things that are happening as, uh, for, with, with, with Jesus right now in heaven. But let me move on and say right now, that there is another event that you could also argue and say, this is the greatest moment. Not just his death or his resurrection, not just his ascension, but when he comes again. Acts 1, 9 to 11. And when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Here is the second coming of Jesus, and that will be glorious. He will not come in, the, in humiliation or humility. He'll, of course, be meek and humble, but he, he will not come as a... As a as a fetus in a womb or a baby. He will not come riding on a donkey. He'll come in the clouds of the glory of heaven and every eye shall see him and every tongue shall confess him. He will be acknowledged by all. Too late for those who rejected him when they had the chance. Now, when Jesus comes in unambiguous manifestation, faith is no longer necessary because they see and believe. But we are to believe and see. So this is not saying that every person is going to come into the kingdom of heaven, but every person will acknowledge who Jesus is. And surely that will be a very, very great moment. But I suggest today, check it out for yourselves, see if you agree with me, that there is a moment after that that is even going to be greater for Jesus. What could be greater than his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming. What could be greater than that? To answer that question, we've got to get right into the heart of Jesus, into the motivation of Jesus. You say, well, this is really very difficult. If it we're not so clear in Scripture, we wouldn't even dare to attempt to answer the question. But Jesus, as the Son of God, has but one desire, and that is to glorify the Father. And when we understand the plan of God, 
we know that a vital part of that is when it's fully accomplished, something is going to take place. This is when the whole thing is done. All things have been reconciled. The glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Where every enemy has been destroyed, even the last enemy death, then something is going to take place. And I believe, you don't have to believe it if you don't want to, but I believe that this will be the greatest moment in the life of Jesus. Everything that happened so far that contributes to this moment will have been building up to this point. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that moment when Jesus delivers the kingdom back into the Father's hands. Think about it. There in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That clearly implies something which is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. In other words, he will not return. He will not vacate that throne and return until that's happened. And there is a hope that RT in particular has been reminding us of in these recent weeks and months. That something is going to happen. The church is going to enter its finest hour when all God's plan and purposes to get glory to his name through the church by Christ Jesus will be fulfilled. When the Great Commission, which is all about the Father's glory, is fulfilled. When all nations, in one way or another, have been discipled. When the whole of creation has heard the gospel and all those who are going to be saved will, will have been saved. And I, I believe, and I'm not the first one to say this, and many theologians have said it over the years, I believe that heaven is going to be more populous than hell. God's plan and purpose is so gracious, so merciful. And we can see how that might work out. There are more people living today than any other time in history. More people coming to Christ today than any other time in history. And I believe that before the coming of Christ, there will be such an end-time harvest that it will be unparalleled. And what that will prove and demonstrate is the riches of the grace and the mercy of God. And, and every last enemy will have been made subject. It's the restoration of all things. I'm not saying that everybody will be saved. No, I'm not saying that. The Bible does not teach that. But I'm saying there'll be such global moves of the gospel and the power of God that some might even be tempted to think that it's, it's going to be universal. But it will not be, of course, that everybody will have the right to choose or reject. And we know that many people will reject. But there will come a time, I believe, when the majority who are alive at the day will accept. I believe there's coming a day when the majority of Israel will be turned back to Jesus Christ. I believe 
there's coming a day when the majority of the nations will turn back to Christ. Hallelujah. And when that has happened, when Christ comes, something is going to happen. Very clearly stated, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then, he, then comes the end. The end. And the word end is sort of like, you know, the end of the world. But it's the end of the world as we know it, with something far better happening afterwards. The word end here is not just about a chronological moment. In fact, it's about the working together and completion of God's purposes and plans. The end, the fulfillment, when everything's done. Then comes the end. What will it look like when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and when he puts to an end all rule and authority and power? Verse 28, 1 Corinthians 15. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. And here it is, that God the Father may be all in all. Now, we were not there when Jesus was born. We were not there when he was crucified. We were not there when he was resurrected. We will be there when he comes again, and we will be there. We will witness this. And if we're allowed to look at each other, I'll have a look at you and I'll say, told you so. <laughs> For I anticipate the greatest moment in the life of Jesus is when he as the perfect, faithful son, loving son of loving father, having accepted God's plan by which the kingdom would be restored and that Jesus would rule at the father's right hand until everything had been made right and God's purposes were fully manifested and expressed. At that time, when that job is done, it will be the Son's pleasure, the greatest moment to hand it all back to the Father and say, Father, you gave me this authority that I might exercise it on your behalf to put it all right, to make it all better, so that your glory would be seen in all the world, throughout the universe, a totally transformed cosmos. The principle of sin and death eradicated and destroyed. Sickness, disease, pain, suffering, injustice, totally swallowed up and in the place, the kingdom of God's righteousness where righteousness is at home. All God's people with all our silly peccadillos and problems and all that kind of fleshly stuff, all gone away. No longer that pull away from God which we call the flesh. Don't anybody kid you. That flesh sticks. We are to master it, but it takes a choice every day to crucify it 
When that battle is over, have you ever felt the weakness of your body? I'm not just looking at the old people. Have you ever felt the weakness in your body? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you ever felt the weakness of the flesh inside of you? You said, God, why is it such a struggle? Why is it this pull? I want to fight. I need to fight today. Why do I have to fight? You've given me the victory. Why do I have to fight? Why do I have to keep pressing ahead? And there is a battle because sin still is here somehow, but sin will be eradicated from those resurrection bodies. We won't even have the propensity, the desire to sin will be so gloriously perfected. In Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In all the glories of Christ's likeness in the future kingdom of God, that will be absolutely amazing. That weakness will have been completely taken away. And all the things, all what we consider to be unanswered prayer, all the questions, God, why? We trust you, but we don't understand then we shall understand. And we are part of this process because we are working out his plan. And he rules that all enemies might become his footstool. How does it work? I need more time on that question, but let me tell you something, something that I know. In Psalm 2, we have a prophetic psalm in which the psalmist reveals the words that the Father places in the lips of the Son at his right hand in exaltation. And here are the words. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. So when we are preaching the gospel and living for God and, and spreading the message across the nations of the world, we are fulfilling the mandate that Jesus has received from the Father and he causes us to share in it. But how does it work? Ask of me. It's as if the Father is waiting for the Son. And at the right hand of the Father, the Son says, Father, and the, fa uh, 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 and the Father says, Yes, Son. Father, Give me Africa. Yes, son. And the Holy Spirit is poured out in torrential portions like never, at least on sub-Saharan Africa. I believe he's prayed that prayer and he's praying that prayer. Father, give me China. The biggest growth in the history of the church in 2,000 years is the Chinese church emerging out of decades of persecution and opposition, sweeping multitudes into the kingdom. That's because Jesus is praying for China. And I, I also believe something else. We've seen it in Latin America. But what about those parched, dry areas? What about Europe? Is Jesus saying, Father, forget Europe. No, 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 no. Jesus died for Europe. Don't think that God has had the final word over this continent. Backslidden, arid continent. 
post-Christian continent. That's not the epitaph that God will write over our nations of Europe. No way. He's also praying, give me Europe. What about North Africa? What about the so-called unreached nations of the earth? Not one of them is forgotten on Jesus' prayer list. And as he prays, so the Spirit is outpoured. Men and women catch something. Desire to go, to preach, to live for God, for God's glory. Because it all is birthed in the heart of Jesus. And the handing back of the kingdom to the Father is the completion of everything. This is such a perfect example of the spirit of sonship. Sons, true sons, delight in nothing more than honoring the Father. Some sons feel as if they have to try and impress the Father, live up to the Father, but that's not the spirit I'm talking about here. The true spirit of sonship is Father-focused, Father-facing, and Father-honoring. And oh, what a wonderful moment when Jesus says, Father, it's all done. The plan is fulfilled. And now I hand it all back to you. And in that way, not subordination or subjection in that sense of inferiority, but in true sonship and submission, all will be back in the order that God gave it in the beginning. Out of that comes so many lessons about unity. The greatest demonstration of sonship, submission, obedience, honoring God. What? There's no greater, greater motivation than the desire to glorify God and to know what that means in detail, in practice. But in it all, in it all, is the reward of true sonship, inheritance. He is the heir of all things. And we are joint heirs with Christ. And because of that, there is an inheritance that we can enter into if we pursue it for the Father's glory. So what about it? Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest moment in the life of Jesus, as great as the cross was, and you can't ever do without that. And the resurrection, you can't ever, it's unthinkable that we could live for God without that. It's what made our salvation possible. Recognizing who he is right now, ruling at the right hand of the Father is indispensable. Knowing that he's coming back again and us being ready for his return, absolutely necessary. But I believe all of these things, from the incarnation to the second coming, will be brought together in one big culmination of the Son's gift back to the Father of a restored, transformed universe where God gets the glory that he alone is due. Lord, we ask you today, 
Help us by your Holy Spirit. We speak of deep things. And we desperately depend on the revelation of the Spirit. Not just that we might understand concepts, but that we might live the reality of these things. Thank you that Resurrection Sunday reminds us that God entered a physical world and lived a real life in the person of His Son. And that spiritual truths are not just mystical ideas, but are rooted in time and space, demonstrated in history, and are working towards a history that is yet to unfold, building up to the return of Christ and the restoration of all things, so that God may be glorified in the future ages as we share in His ongoing, continuing purposes and in the inheritance that He has for us. Help us, Lord, work in our hearts. We thank you, Father, for the moment in which we can step from one kingdom to the other. Becoming a Christian people is about stepping from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The Bible describes the gospel as the word of his revelation and light. And as we've seen this thing play out right to the very end according to scripture, we know which side we want to be on. We want to be on the side that glorifies God. But we can't do that. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of His glory. But there is a solution. And that is through Jesus' death on the cross, the gift of righteousness can be given in exchange for the condemnation that rests. And all we have to do is say, God, I, I can't do it. I give up in my own strength. But I say yes to who Jesus is and what he's done for me.